I get a sheet, why don't you raise your hand and uh, wow, we've got a boatload of folks out of town today, man. I, I didn't know what it was going to be like in here. We did close off the balcony for a while because it was looking weak and sickly among us in here and it filled up and uh, now some of you balcony folks don't get ticked off the people up there sitting in your pew. Uh, we appreciate your willingness to work with us on that this morning. All right, anybody else on a study sheet? Okay, a few over there. I, I, I think it was last week I was talking about how nostalgic I am. Uh, check it out. Twelve years ago uh, this Sunday, y'all were getting ready to vote on a, on a new pastor. Eleven years ago, we were over on the other side of that wall in the gym because this room was being dealt with. Uh, we, we were remodeling in here and extending the balcony and the, the back section and some of that kind of stuff. And on this particular Sunday, there was a young man over there that was sitting over, like, my left, right over, right in here. Y'all watch out today. But he's sitting right, right over here, and man, I mean, he was hanging on every word that I said. The night before, he was out smoking dope. That morning, he was sitting there listening to the Word of God go forth and responded to the invitation. And he is about 30 miles up the road this morning pastoring the First Baptist Church of Jackson Township. <laughs> How about that, man? Just a lot can happen in 11 years, you know? Uh, a year ago, you, you men know what we were doing? We were over in Russia, man. You remember we, 105 of us there in that park with all these dignitaries from Russia on the 4th of July, or at least the Sunday we were recognizing it, and we're singing the Star Spangled Banner and all other kind of stuff and falling on our knees there praying for our country right there in, in Russia. And, and here we are this Sunday, and we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 15. And if you look at your study sheet, chapter 15 introduces us to a time that God warns about through the entire Bible. What we see unfolding here in chapter 15, God's been talking about all the way through. It's a time when God's mercy, a time when God's grace and His compassion, His tenderheartedness, it's over. And He unleashes His anger and His wrath and vengeance and judgment upon the wickedness of the world. Uh, look in verse 1. He says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the, the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And drop down to verse 6. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And what we begin to see as we come into chapter 16 is these seven angels that have these seven vials that contain the seven last plagues, which is the wrath of God, the angels begin to pour those out as God begins to judge this world. And again, like I said just a second ago, all the way through the Bible, God's been warning about this time. And I want to show you this, just so you can begin to get a feel for it. Now, I'll just tell you, y'all, you're going to have to get your Bible greased up because we're going to be going to a lot of different places this morning. Let's start and let's uh, try to get as much uh, downtime out of the way when we move to a next, the next passage, almost like when we were kids doing Bible drills. Let's try to get there just as quickly as we can. 
Deuteronomy chapter 32. We, we've been here in recent weeks, but this is the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And in this song, in fact, it's a, a song that God gives to Moses here. And he says in verse 35, God speaking, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot, that is the, the wicked of the world, and in the context, those who follow the Antichrist. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. And drop down to verse 41. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. And God makes it very clear. There will come a day when his tenderheartedness and grace and love is over. Go over to Psalm, Psalm 2. And this is a recurring theme in the book of Psalms. Look in Psalm 2. Again, the context. When the Antichrist has come, and it's the same context as we're dealing with in Revelation 15 and 16, and God says in verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. In other words, worship the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his Wrath is kindled but a little. And let me tell you something. When it gets kindled just a little bit, it's more intense than you could ever in a million years ever possibly imagine. Turn to Psalm 21. 21 verse 8. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the, the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Psalm 50. Now that you've gotten to 21. Psalm 50. Look at verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And turn over to the right just a little bit to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 63. And again, the context, folks, is Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Isaiah 63. Let's pick up in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them into my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Drop down to verse 6. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. And to the book of Mal uh, Micah. Micah chapter 5. And look at the last verse of the chapter. Micah 5 verse 15. God says, And I will execute vengeance 
in anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. You can't even put it into words when God begins to let his vengeance and his fury be poured out upon the earth. And you say, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. Well, let's, let's cruise into the New Testament to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll pick up in verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there re remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And let me just mention what, what he's talking about here is that once you have heard the truth of the Word of God, it's been explained to you, and God has made clear His truth, and you don't respond to it, there's nothing more that's going to happen. God's not going to come and zap you. He's not going to make you do something you don't want to do. This is it. All He does is declare His truth, and He makes it known to you, and there's no more thing that God's going to do. Now, let, let, let's pick up in verse 27. Well, let's go to verse 26 again. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And oh my, 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 I wish that every person in this room would listen very carefully to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and just turn over a page or two to the 12th chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I, I, I purposely took you through all of those. I, I could have just capsulized it and just said, there's coming a day when God's grace and mercy have been extended and it's over and now he's going to let loose his wrath and his vengeance and his judgment. But I wanted you to be able to see it. And to be quite honest with you, because I believe that the Spirit of God works in conjunction with this book, I didn't want to just tell you. I wanted you to have to see it 
from the Word of God and give you enough time for the Spirit of God to say something to you as we were going through this thing. And to be quite honest with you folks, what we're talking about here is a side of Jesus that people don't want to talk about. Christians are almost afraid to let people know that the God of the Bible, the living God, is a God of justice and a God of judgment just as surely as he is a God of love and he is a God of grace. And folks, we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. We've got to make sure that we give people the honest gospel and present to them the true God because this is just simply the other side of the coin that comes together to make God who he is. He is, in fact, a God of judgment. You know, people have, have said, and, and I don't think that it's, it's that they're really trying to be vindictive, but people have, have actually said to me, you know, you, you, you spend as much time talking about the Antichrist as you do the Lord Jesus Christ. People have said to me, you know what, you, you spend more time talking about judgment than you do talking about grace. Now, okay, we happen to be in the book of Revelation, which is a book that spends a whole lot of time talking about the Antichrist. And, and you know what we, we've learned around here is that we need to make sure that we emphasize what God emphasizes. I mean, now that's, that's fair, isn't it? I mean, if God's going to take his book and he's going to emphasize some things, it just stands to reason that that better be what we emphasize. It's not up to us to look at this thing and say, well, you know, on this part over here, I'm not real hip on that. I don't like that part too much. I like this part a lot better, and I'm going to make that the focal point of my ministry. No. Just leave the book alone and emphasize what God emphasizes. And you see, what you begin to see is that other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Antichrist gets more billing than any other person in the entire Bible. And you know what? If you want to talk about a ministry of, of judgment, you know, people will follow that up with, you know, it seems as if you've patterned your ministry after Paul rather than Jesus because of that, you know, that judgment aspect. Well, now listen, if you want to talk about somebody who had a ministry of judgment, the Apostle Paul is a Sunday school picnic, man. I, listen, do you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven? And did you know that if you just take the whole context of all of Scripture, not only would you find that Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the entire Bible, but he spoke more about hell than all of the rest of the people in the Bible combined. And I want to begin to show you this as well. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And for those of you that missed that on your study sheet, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Jesus not only spoke more about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible, but he spoke more about hell than all the rest of the people in the Bible combined. Matthew chapter 7. And let's watch... The ministry of Jesus, okay? We're just going to go let the Bible be the Bible now. And he says in Matthew 7, he's coming down to the conclusion of his first sermon, the first sermon he ever preached, and he brings it down to a point of decision. Same kind of a decision that you're going to be faced with in this room here this morning. 
Jesus says in verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And watch what he says. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And old First Baptist, listen. And few there be that find it. Now that's one thing if I say that. It's a whole different animal. When the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, most people are going to go to hell. And there will be few. There will be few that make it to heaven. Go over to chapter 13. Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Verse 38. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 23 and verse 33. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day. If we could, y'all, he is speaking to the fundamentalist of his day. And he says in verse 33, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Chapter 25, verse 29, Jesus says, For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he, sh he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And drop down to verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. Jesus says in verse 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter in, in to, uh, enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. I mean, he's trying to get us a message about this incredible, an incredibly awful place. Verse 47, if I, I offend thee, pluck it out 
It's better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And we could go on into the, the, the book of Luke where Jesus says, now, now listen, some of you folks are fearing the wrong people. You fear people that can throw you into prison. You fear people that can take your life. And Jesus says, listen, fear him who can not only take your life, but after he's taken your life, can cast you into hell. And he says, fear him. And again, I'm telling you, it's just something that we don't like to talk about. We don't want to see this side of Jesus, and yet, you see, you cannot appreciate his love and his grace unless you understand just how repulsive sin is for him. I told you a few weeks ago, if you want to see how repulsive sin is, if you want to see the wrath of God, it was revealed when he cast judgment upon his son on the cross and if you refuse his son who was offered as a payment for your sin, that wrath is coming back around again. It's already been cast on him, so it doesn't have to be cast on you. But you reject him. And that's what we've seen all the way through this thing. You refuse the son. And that wrath is coming back. And, and I, I've, listen, I've just taken you to a few places. And again, for the sole purpose allowing the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and in all of us begin to do some things to reveal truth to our hearts. And you know what? If, if, if we were going to try to take the Bible and, 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 and let it describe for us this horrendous place, I'm, I'm not sure that our minds could even create or see just how horrendous, just how awful this place is. One writer put it this way. It's on your study sheet. There's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across some fevered mind ever produced a terror to match even the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wounds ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame, and he would not even brush in fancy the nearest edge of hell. And as sobering as that reality is, the thing that makes it even more sobering to me is the fact that based on what this book says, y'all, good people go there. And not only good people, religious people go there. Not only good religious people, but sincere people go there. Many people who thought they were serving God go there. 
I mentioned this a minute ago. Most people go there. And the reality is, folks, once you're there, you'll always be there. You'll always be there. We've talked about this in, in times past. I don't know for sure if we can emphasize it enough. But a lot of people who go to churches just like this one and are there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday are going to be some of the people. They're going to draw their last breath one of these days and go to hell. And, and you know, that, that's my little humble uh, opinion. Can, can I just show you some of the statements of some other folks? A.W. Tozer, one of the, the greatest men in the 20th century to ever come along, said this, among evangelical churches, check this out now, probably no more than one out of ten know anything experientially about the new birth. In other words, 90% of people who think they're saved really aren't. Dale Burden, he is the editor of a magazine titled The Gist. He says, anyone with any spiritual maturity and discernment who knows the religious climate in America today knows most church members today are not saved. Dr. W.A. Criswell, the famous Southern Baptist Convention pastor of the huge First Baptist Church in Dallas, said to a few pastors on the platform after he had preached, and Dale Burden says, I was there. But Criswell said that he would be surprised to meet 25% of his members in heaven. Bob Gray, longtime pastor of the Big Trinity Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, said several years ago that probably 75% of those he baptized were not saved. Paris Reedhead, an evangelical, evangelical author, said we've got to recognize that the message of salvation must not be addressed only to the world, but to the members of America's evangelical churches also. The greatest field for evangelism today and in the days ahead is among church members. Monroe Parker, who is known as the Dean of American Evangelists, said if we could get half the church members saved, we would see a great revival. In fact, I think if we could get half of the preachers in America converted, we'd see a mighty revival. B.R. Lakin estimated that 75% of those attending Bible-believing churches were lost. As we mentioned a minute ago, W.A. Criswell said he believed 75% of those attending Bible-believing churches just like this one are lost. Dr. Billy Graham said that he thought 85% of those attending evangelical churches were lost. Jim Eliff consultant in the Southern Baptist Convention said that he believes after his studies and consulting church after church after church that 90% of people that attend fundamental Bible-believing churches are actually lost. 
So, so Jesus has given us his, his read, his take on this thing of hell. Now let's just look at America and what America has to say about this, this subject. This is taken from a, a survey conducted by George Gallup. And what it says is this, that 94% of the American population believes in God. 81% believe in Judgment Day. 81% of the religiously active believe in life after death. 50% of the non-religiously active believe in life after death. 32% of the non-religiously active do not believe in life after death. Now start watching this. 66% of America believes in heaven. 46% of America expects to spend eternity in heaven. 53% of America believes in hell. Now check this out. 4% expect to spend eternity there. Now I'm just telling you, it's pretty scary when only 4% of the people in our country think that they've even got to concern themselves with the reality of this incredible place that we've been talking about here this morning. And what's even scarier than that to me is the fact that at least 4% of the people think they're going there and are okay with that. I mean, how do you ever come to the place where, yep, I'm going. You believe in it, and yet believe you're going there. John Gerstner, in his book, Repent or Perish, writes this. Most people who are going to hell find it more comfortable to deny that fact than admit it. Yet denying hell is one of the main reasons they're going there. God can't lie himself and can't stand the company of liars. Now, now watch this. Their enemies assure them that they are not going to hell. Their friends warn them that they are. Foolishly, they make their enemies friends for telling them lies. They make their friends enemies for telling them the truth. Though with the kind of friends they have, they need no enemies. And, and you know what? If you're a guest with us today, if you're a typical American, and if what this gentleman says is true, I have probably become your enemy today. When in reality, I'm doing my dead level best to be your friend. To give you the truth so that you can look at this thing and, and really understand what it is that God is communicating through this book and through what we're eventually going to see in Revelation chapter 15. But you say, well, that's, that's America. You see, born-again people don't, don't think like that. Okay, well, let's look at what born-again America has to say about the subject of hell. And when we're using, look at the note there, when we're talking about the term born-again Christians, they're defined in this survey. This is a, a, a survey that was conducted by the Barna Research Group. And the born-again Christians in this survey are defined as individuals who say that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. When they took 
when they took the survey, they said that they had come to a place where they had made a commitment to Christ and that it was still something that was important to them at the moment that they were taking the survey. They were asked to, to choose one of seven alternatives posed regarding life after death. That alternative that they chose reads this way. When you die, you will go to heaven because you have confessed your sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Okay, so in other words, when the survey was trying to figure out who's who on this thing, they had seven things that they could choose from. What they are saying is, this is what I believe. And this is basically what we would call somebody who's born again, a person who is good, when they die is going to go to heaven because they confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay, so we're talking about people that we would recognize as born again. This is their view. 31% see hell as an actual place of physical torment where people may be sent. Three out of ten. 37% say hell is not a place, but it represents a state of permanent separation from the presence of God. Four out of ten, basically. Nineteen percent, two in ten. Nineteen percent say hell is merely a symbolic term, not referring to a physical place. And then, of born-again people, ten percent, were undecided on their views concerning hell. Wow. What I'm trying to get you to see is we do a real good job of convincing ourselves that we're okay. You know, when we get on this subject, we're always thinking about this must apply to to somebody else. I'm just not always so sure that it does. And, and I want you to go back to Revelation 15, if you would. <clears throat> John says, I saw another sign in heaven. Okay, now, if you'll go back to chapter 12 for just a second. It says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven. The word wonder there is the same word that's translated sign over in chapter 15. And what we find is there's three signs in the book of Revelation. The first one is in chapter 12, and it is the woman. Do you remember who the woman is? The woman is who, y'all? It's Israel. The second sign or wonder is in verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. So it's a, a great sign or a great wonder in verse 1. Another wonder, a great dragon in verse 3. And then now to, back to chapter 15 in verse 1. He says, I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous. Now, in other words, this is the sign of signs, man. Now, these other things, man, they were, they were great. This one is great and marvelous. 
it's, it's something that, that would blow your hair back, take your breath away, blow you away. That's what he's talking about. It was great and marvelous. Now, what is this sign? He, he defines it. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. And I mentioned this just a minute ago. What you've got to see, though, is that what these angels have in these vials that contain these plagues is the wrath of God. And I want you to see this. John looks at this thing and he says, Wow! It was great! It was marvelous! Now, let me ask you, Christian, have you ever defined the wrath of God as great and marvelous? We sing around here, How great is your love! How marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! Oh, how marvelous! Yeah, it is my Savior's love for me. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's marvelous. John says, I saw his wrath. And it was great. And it was marvelous. Say what? What's up with that? And uh, I, I, I wish we had more time. We're going to go into detail on, on this next time. But let, let, me just, let me just show you a little bit of this. In 2 Thessalonians, we were in this passage last week. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. And look at verse 7, and it says... And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance. Okay? Now listen. Get, get the context. This is that time when the entire world and everybody is going to see the vengeance of God. That's the context. And he says, He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. What he's saying is there's coming a day when the wrath of God is going to be poured out. His vengeance is going to be on display. And what's going to happen at that time is all those who have not obeyed the gospel of God, those who have refused the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be cast into everlasting punishment and torment. And he says, and the rest of the folks who did respond to the Lord Jesus Christ will watch him as he unleashes his vengeance and his wrath and his anger and his fury. And you know what we'll do? We'll admire him. We will glorify him. We will hold him in awe. Listen. On that day, not because of the manifestation of His love and His grace. We will admire Him. We will hold Him in awe. Because of His wrath. Till. And, and 
you say, well, I, I'm, you know, that's, that's a little obscure. What, could you go back to Deuteronomy 32 with me for a sec? And I'll get, get it greased up again so we can get to the good stuff. Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 43. We, we were here just a minute ago. We, we ended in verse 2. He, he, this is that time when, man, his, his judgment is, is being poured out. You can see in verse 41 when his vengeance is being rendered upon his enemies. And watch what happens in verse 43. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And while he's pouring out the wrath, check it out, those who have responded, rejoice. And go to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. Psalm 58, verse 6. Break their teeth, O God, and their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. Let them melt away as waters which run continually when he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows. Let them be as cut in pieces, as a snail which melteth. Let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the thorns, he shall take them away as a with whirlwind, both living and in his wrath. Verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. And you know what? I think you're getting the picture. We could go to all these places and what you find out is when his vengeance is unleashed, when his wrath is poured out, the righteous on that day will rejoice and will admire him and will hold him in awe because, listen, on that day, check it out. Everybody gets exactly what they deserve. Check it out. When he comes back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 that we were just looking at, you understand what this is? This is the second coming of Christ where he comes back to this earth to establish his millennial kingdom. And for the first time on this planet since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, for the first time, the Lord Jesus Christ gets what he deserves. And when he comes at that time, what it says is that he is going to come to the Mount of Olives and he is going to step right on to the head of the Antichrist, which at that time is going to be inhabited by Satan himself. He will come and he will crush his stinking head and he will finally give that sucker what he deserves. He's going to cast him into the bottomless pit. Jesus is going to get on that day what he deserves. Satan's going to get what he deserves. And check it out, every wicked person who has ever said no to Jesus Christ in the face of full revelation of truth is going to get exactly what they deserve on that day. There's only one group of people that gets what they don't deserve. And that's us. Because you know what?
we deserve that judgment, that wrath, that hell, just like everybody else. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw the the paper yesterday, but it's been in the news quite a bit. The Matthew Vaca that killed the young Dover student. He came before the the judge this week, and the prosecuting attorney looked at him and said this, I'm, I'm quoting, when the good Lord decides to take your life, you will go to hell, and that's what you deserve for the crimes you've committed. And you know what? She's right. That is what he deserves, only one thing. She could have also said that about me. When the good Lord decides to take me, I deserve that awful place that we've been talking about. And she could have kept going and she could have included you. Because that's exactly what you deserve. You say, well, hey, well, at least I never killed anybody. Oh, really? And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that it, if you've ever had hate in your heart toward another person, you're guilty of murder. Any murderers here? The Bible says that when Jesus Christ came to this planet, that it was my sin that nailed him to that tree. It was your sin that nailed him. You know what? It was our sin that killed him. Anybody here guilty of murder? We all are. We all deserve that. And yet, if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... You ain't going to get what you deserve. And you know what? That's what's been going on for 6,000 years. What we're talking about in Revelation 15 is something that's going to take place in just the near future. But for, listen, for 6,000 years of human history, when wicked people like me and you come to the place to where we'll humble ourselves before God, you know what God will do? He'll lavish His love and grace and mercy and compassion upon us. And I want to show you this as quickly as I know how through seven kings. And we'll, we'll, we'll cruise real quick through this thing. Don't get nervous. The first one is King Ahab. And turn to, to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings... Chapter 16, and all you really need to know about Ahab, this king of Israel, is spelled out for you in verse 30 of 1 Kings chapter 16. And Ahab, check it out now, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Drop down to verse 32. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. I mean, are you getting the idea here? This is a wicked guy. You know who his wife is? Somebody tell me. Jezebel. 
And it's a whole system of religion that was used and started and established there under Ahab and Jezebel that is in the very near future going to be the very system of religion that is going to damn billions of people on this planet alive right now to hell. That's this King Ahab. And I want you to go over with me to chapter 21. Now, I'm just telling you, if I'm God, man, and you're dealing with this dude... Ahab, that's provoked you more than anybody else, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reared back like this, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to thump him off of the planet, you know? Check this out. Chapter 21, look at verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes, and put sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went softly. And if I'm God, I'm going to say, too late, pal! And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. I mean, can you believe that? Hey, how about the next one? King Rehoboam turned to Second Chronicles chapter 10. Second Chronicles 10. And you'll see when you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 10, that in verse 1, this is where he becomes the king. And, and I think most of you are familiar with the story in verse 7. What, what he does is he, he gathers together the old men to counsel him, to say, okay, now, you know, uh, my, my dad did a real poor job in all this thing. What do you guys think? How do you think I ought to approach this? And, and what they tell him in verse 7 is, listen, if thou be kind to this people and please them, and speak good words to them. You know what, pal? They'll serve you forever. But he forsook the counsel which the old man gave him, and took counsel with the young men that were brought up with him, that stood before him. And he said unto them, What advice give ye that we may return answer to this people which have spoken to me, saying, Ease somewhat the yoke that thy father did put upon us. And what you begin to see here is when he comes down to what he's going to do, he follows the counsel of the young men. Look at verse 14. And answered them after the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I'll add thereto. My father chastised you with whips, I'll chastise you with scorpions. So the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was of God. And what you begin to see over in chapter 12. Look at verse 1, and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And in the, the, the rest of the passage goes on to warn about his, the, the judgment that was going to come because of this. Look at verse 12. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah... Things went well. What about that? Go over to chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. Chapter 32, King Hezekiah. And let's pick up in verse 24. In those days Hezekiah was sick to death and prayed unto the Lord. And he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. For his heart 
was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Check this out now. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And I'm just telling you, man, if it, it's just a good thing I'm not God. Because I can just tell you, there'd be three kings that would be flicked off the globe. Wouldn't you? They humbled themselves. And God says, Okay. Look, look at chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 15 and 5 years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. Drop down to verse 6. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of him. You know what he did? He sacrificed his own children to the gods of the heathen. Also, he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. And listen, you've got to understand, these guys knew better. These guys knew the God of Israel. They understood all of that. And drop down to verse 12. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And then in chapter 34, it's King Josiah. It's a little bit of a different story. This is a guy that's really, he's a lot like a lot of you that are in here. He's doing everything that he knew to do. The only problem was he didn't know everything that he needed to do. And the things that he didn't know to do were going to bring the judgment of God. And what God does is he graciously allows him to hear the word of truth. He allows them to find the word of God as they're repairing the temple. And check out what Josiah's response was. And check out what God's response was in response to Josiah. Look at verse 24. Thus said the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the habitations thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, and they, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. But now for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and humblest thyself before me and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me. I even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I'll gather thee to thy fathers and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. And then next is King David, and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And of course, you know the story. Second Samuel says that it was a time when kings do battle, and what King David was doing when the kings were supposed to be in battle is he's chilling in the palace and cruises out on the balcony, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And if you check out the, what happens there, he commits... Four out of the last five of the Ten Commandments. And again, now this is a guy 
that knew better. This is a guy that had hidden God's word in his heart and said he loved the law of God. And here he is. He coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, and he murdered. And of course, Nathan the prophet comes and he faces him on his sin. And boy, I'm telling you, when Nathan puts that thing out there, David is so mad because you see what Nathan did is he gave him an illustration that was a lot like what he did, but he put it in different terms so that he would be able to see his sin. And when David heard the illustration, I mean, he was so ticked. And he said, oh, I'm telling you, the guy that did this, man, this is what ought to happen to him. And, and Nathan says, all right, well, you just told your story because what I was talking about was you. And check it out in Psalm 51. And in fact, look before the verse 1. Most of your Bibles probably have to the chief musician, the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And check out verse 14. David prays and says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. He says, God, whatever sacrifice you would ask me to make, there's not a thing that I would not withhold from you. I would sacrifice anything. But Lord, I know you don't delight in burnt offering. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And you know what David did? He humbled himself because of his sin before Almighty God. And then there's a final king. And I guess if we're going to look at all of the illustrations in the Bible, if we're going to find the one that would just kind of crystallize it probably better than all of the other ones of God's willingness to withhold his judgment upon the sin of the world, this one would be King Me. Just put me in there. No, not Mark Trotter. <laughs> you. You see, now, now listen, y'all. The, the Bible says that we had set ourselves up as the king in our own little kingdom. And what we did in our kingdom is we called the shots. According to Isaiah 53, every single one of us, according to what the Bible said, not me, we all chose our own way. And not only did we choose our own way, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 said that we walked according to the course of this world, that system of evil that is against everything that God is. It says that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, and because of that, we were called, listen to it, children of disobedience. That's the way that God viewed us. It goes on in verse 3 and says that we fulfilled the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and as such, listen, this is the Word of God. Ephesians 2, 3. We were by nature the children of wrath. Because of who we were, because we had set ourselves up as the king in our kingdom, we were children of wrath. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 echoes the same thing, and it says what we did is we exercised our flesh in fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. Listen to the very next verse. For which things the wrath of God cometh 
upon the children of disobedience. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 36 that at the time when we were walking our own way, when we were our own little king of our own little kingdom, what he says is at that very moment, listen, the wrath of God abided on us. It wasn't like one of these days it was going to come. No. He said that wrath was already there. It was just waiting to be unleashed. But you know what happened to most of us in this room this morning? Somebody had the audacity to come and give us the truth of the Word of God. And you know what we kings did when we heard it? The same thing these other six guys did when the Word of God came to them. We humbled ourselves. And James chapter 4 and verse 10 says, listen to it, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. You know what we did? We were children of wrath. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 goes on and says, But God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love wherewith He loved us, for by grace are ye saved. And what it says that what He did is He, listen to it, He raised us up to sit together with Him in heavenly places. You get it? The wrath of God abided on us and we were gonna bust hell wide open. We were confronted with the truth of this book and we humbled ourselves. And just like James 4.10 says, He lifted us up. And spiritually this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, He's already lifted you up. You're already in heaven this morning spiritually, just as sure as you're going to be when you draw your last breath. It's already a done deal. He's already lifted you up. And now you have the promise that when you do draw your last breath, your body... Or your, your, your soul and spirit are going to be reunited with whatever it is that's there and at the rapture of the church your body too is going to be rejoined with that whole deal and he's going to lift you up but now listen it was because we humbled ourselves and again that's why I wanted to take you to all these kings it, every single one of them the wrath of God was upon them they humbled themselves and God dealt with them in grace mercy and forgiveness now listen some of you are in this room this morning and if you were to draw your last breath right now the fact is the wrath of God that abides on you right now would be unleashed you draw your last breath here and you'd awake in hell. But it doesn't have to happen. But it's going to. Unless you say it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Most of you folks in this room are believers. There came a day when you humbled yourself before God and you got saved. And now some of you have made such a mess of this thing. I mean, somewhere in your heart of hearts, man, you want to do it right. But boy, you're really struggling to make this thing right. 
you have a real hard time living the way that he tells you that he wants you to live. You know what? You can almost get to the point sometimes to where you are feeling so dirty and so rotten that you come to the place where you say, what's the use? I'll tell you what the use is. If you'll humble yourself, you know what? God will deal in His grace even to you. If you'll just humble yourself. But the greatest sin in all of the world is the sin of And that's really what you're faced with today. I'm going to continue on in my pride or I'm going to humble myself before the loving, gracious, tender-hearted, compassionate, forgiving, creator, God. And I promise you, if you do, it, listen, if he do it for Ahab, if he do it for Rehoboam, if he do it for Hezekiah, if he do it for Je- Josiah, if he do it for David, if he do it for me, I promise you, he'll do it for you. Let's bow our heads. Now, if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ. He is a God of wrath and judgment. You've seen that today. He talked about it a whole lot more than I did this morning, believe me. But that's what makes him so unbelievable. Is because he is also a God of grace and love and mercy. And he wants to extend that to you. He doesn't want to pour His wrath out on you. He wants to receive you. But you've got to be willing to receive Him. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that today. We're about to be dismissed. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room. And we're inviting you today that if God has spoken to your heart, you know what we're inviting you to do? hardest thing in all the world. Now listen, salvation is the easiest thing in all the world. The hardest thing in all the world is you just coming to the place of humbling yourself. And that's what you're faced with today. Will you continue on in your pride? Or will you humble yourself before God? And oh, Christian, would you humble yourself just like you did the first time when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just humble yourself before Him and find His grace and forgiveness and mercy extended to you today. And let this day be a day that changes the course and direction of your life because you know that God received you not based on your merits because He wouldn't receive you on them, but because you humbled yourself. And He will receive you on that as we've seen the example of now Lord would you please would you please speak to the hearts of people today and I pray there wouldn't be anybody here 
that in light of the things we've talked about today, would draw their last breath and go to hell. Oh, Lord, by your Spirit, would you, would you please convict people and draw them to yourself. And I pray that they would humble themselves before you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.